Pope St. John Paul II said that discovering Christ always again and always more fully is the most wonderful adventure of our life. Blazing the Trail is a weekly conversation where we talk about this adventure with courage and hope while sharing stories about what the Holy Spirit is doing in Western Oregon and beyond. Welcome once again to Blazing the Trail. I am your host, Miriam Marston. It's great to have you along for another episode as we continue to reflect together on the call to discipleship and the call to mission. My guest this week is Sarah Bartell, who is a co-founder of a Catholic marriage enrichment program called Cana Feast. Uh, So I thought it made sense to start this episode with a reflection on that beautiful scripture passage from the Gospel of John, which describes Jesus's miracle of turning water into wine. So let's go ahead and turn to the words of John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. When the wine ran short, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, how does your concern affect me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servers, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish ceremonial washings, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told them, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it. And when the head waiter tasted the water that had become wine without knowing where it came from, although the servers who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely, an inferior one. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this as the beginning of his signs in Cana in Galilee, and so revealed his glory, and his disciples began to believe in him. Again, that is from the second chapter of John, and so many commentaries have been written on this passage, and I really just want to focus on one phrase in this opening reflection. I want to just sit with those words of Mary for a moment. Now, these five words are the last recorded words of Mary in Scripture. Do whatever He tells you. This is such a powerful instruction which comes from the Mother of God, and it would seem fitting that this is where her recorded words would end, and it rings out like a church bell, like a bell that has never stopped ringing for 2,000 years. And in her command to the servers in Cana, she has an exhortation for each and every one of us. She's not just speaking to a few people in a town in Galilee. She's speaking to you and to me. And note that she doesn't say, do a few of the things he tells you. She doesn't leave us that option to pick and choose. I mean, I'm sure that the servers at the wedding were a little taken aback by Jesus's command to fill up the water jars. They're probably thinking, okay, what is this possibly going to accomplish? But isn't it the same with us? Are we really listening to Mary's words to do whatever he tells us, even if what he tells us seems to run contrary to our own plans or ideas? 
But those are precisely uh, the turning points in evangelization. When we've let go of some of our own agendas and expectations and we dive in and say, all right, okay, I'll do whatever he tells me. Then, only then, have we really gotten out of the way and thrown open the doors to what the Holy Spirit really wants to accomplish in us and through us. So please enjoy my conversation with Sarah as she shares her own journey of faith and how she has responded to the Lord's call to go and make disciples. I'm so pleased to be joined today by Sarah Bartel. Uh, Sarah is a co-founder of Cana Feast, which is a Catholic online marriage enrichment program. She is a wife and mom and moral theologian. Sarah, what a joy to have you on today. How are you? Oh, I'm great. It's really good to be with you, Miriam. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, Sarah, let us just dive right in. I want to ask... Um, so when did the person of Jesus Christ catch your attention? Um, when did church become something more than sitting in a pew for an hour a week? Walk us through some of what that story looked like. Well, I was baptized and raised Catholic. So my mom taught me my prayers when I was a little girl. I had a long litany of God bless so-and-so because I had a lot of aunts and uncles and um, cousins. And I went to Catholic school for some of the years of my life, but really, really, the person who brought Jesus Christ alive for me was my uncle, Hans, Father Olson. He is a priest in the Archdiocese of Seattle, and he was newly ordained when I was in early grade school wow. and always would speak to me really. Uh, it, okay, he's a big tease. So he's my, my mother's brother and just, you know, a very teasy uncle, but also full of faith. And so one day I was sitting at my grandparents' farm counter and he walked into the room and said, Sarah, what do you want to be when I, you grow up? I don't know what I answered, but he said, why not be a saint? And wow, I was like, oh, psh, no way. But then I thought about it. That stuck. He planted a seed, which really was nourished over the years, especially through his example. As I grew, became confirmed. I also had further awakenings in my teen years to really becoming excited and alive in my Catholic faith through the intercession of Our Lady and her becoming really more present. I was really involved and interested in the Marian apparitions that were really popular in the 90s. Um, but that led me to discover the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which St. John Paul II had just released when I was in high school. And I really dived into learning on my own these beautiful teachings that we have. And they just made my heart sing with joy. So even after the, like, the excitement about the supernatural with the Marian apparitions faded away, and I kind of stepped away from that, um, some of them also were kind of scary with you know, yeah. prophecies of chastisement. So I had to take a step back to yeah. just keep my peace of mind, of and, um, but, but kept a closeness to the Eucharist and uh, love of the saints and love of our lady um, and the, the teachings of the church. So that is kind of the story in a nutshell. I went on to, to study uh, the teachings of the church in grad school. I just, mm -hmm. you know, loved it and wanted to keep going deeper and deeper. And that's, kind of one thing led to another. So. Cool. Well, you know, I mentioned at the start uh, that you're a moral theologian. Uh, what did that path look like? What was it about moral theology that really drew you, Sarah? Well, it was in my first year of grad school, and I wasn't quite sure whether I was going to specialize in 
historical theology or moral theology because I was really attracted to their teaching, the early Christian fathers and just that, I don't know, something early Christian art and architecture, all that was really attractive to me. But uh, I actually heard a pro-life speaker come through campus at Catholic U. She's from Canada and I forget her name right now, but (laughs) maybe people, she's from the Pacific Northwest part of Canada. And I had been really involved in the pro-life movement in my high school years um, and in college as well, started the pro-life group at Gonzaga University. Um, So of course, I was really excited to hear this pro-life talk. And it was after that talk, my choice was made. I wanted to study moral theology to really be able to address and deal with issues of our time that are affecting people now, even though it's really interesting and cool to research and think about the early church. And that's, that's still, you know, a love of mine, but uh, yeah, I wanted to be where the rubber hits the road with the moral issues now. And actually um, kind of the pro-life interests tied into the theology of the body and marriage and family, which is really where um, the bulk of my activity has been for the last 20 years or so marriage and family life. Awesome. Well, I want to get to that, but there's something I, I wanted to ask before, and you, you actually just hinted at this, where the rubber meets the road. And, you know, I mentioned that you're a wife and mother, and that is in the domestic church, church is where we see a lot of that rubber meeting the road. Um, how have you, you know, your own passion for the faith and your own experience growing up, how has that then translated into kind of your 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 own family, how you've raised your own kids. Um, how have you seen that kind of translate into to parenthood? Well, I had a lot of motivation to raise my kids, not just raised Catholic. Don't you know so many people who are yeah. raised Catholic, yeah. but then it doesn't really mean anything to them right now. Yeah. I am the oldest of 26 cousins. And of all my cousins who were all but one, all of them were baptized Catholic. And most of them went to Catholic school and only one other cousin is practicing her faith right now. Wow. So seeing this happen and then seeing my own children, I thought that's not what I want for them. I want them to know Jesus, like that he is real, that it matters if you um, keep up your relationship with him. So from an early, early age, I would bring them to adoration with me. And at mass, we'd say, there's Jesus on the Eucharist. Like it's really a passion for me that they would know that he is real. Like at mass, I would tell my oldest girls when they were little, like, if you could see what's invisible, you would see this church filled with angels and saints. And and they're here, you know, just to really give them this, like woven into the fibers of their heart as they grow and into their imagination and soul, like as it expands, I just wanted this to be part of their breath that they would know church is their home for their whole life and into eternity. So we read lots of stories of saints and, coloring pages of saints and sacred heart. And I just kind of did whatever I could find that seemed like a joyful and relevant way to help them uh, make make being Catholic really part of their identity and make being in love with Jesus and wanting to be a saint themselves, just part of how they they're Yeah. yeah, who they see themselves as. I'm thinking of what you, uh, the story that you told about what your uncle shared with you about saying, well, why don't you be, why don't you be a saint? Did you, have you, have you had those moments with your own children where you've been able to kind of imitate that moment? Like, Oh, uh, how, what do you want to be when you grow up? How about being a saint? Have you been able to have those conversations with your own kids? 
you know, I don't think I've done it in that exact, in that same way. Um, but we do talk about like, that's the whole point of our life is to know and love Jesus and to, and that being a saint just means you get to heaven and that's the goal. So there, um, that's a good reminder to like, <laughs> and especially with, um, you know, the feast of all saints, uh, in the fall and, and that, that month to just keep that in mind. Cause that is our ultimate goal. It is. And you know, you, you make a good point too, that the church gives us so many opportunities really every day to remind us uh, that this is what we're called to. We're called to be a saint. We're called to beatitude. We're called to happiness, um, living with God in the communion of the saints and angels for all time. Because uh, we have feast days every day, but you mention certain days during the liturgical calendar, which really highlight that call, which is awesome. Well, the, the liturgical calendar that has been a real love and passion for me with our family. Yeah. You know, I really wanted to cultivate this idea that our family is a domestic church and latching on to the liturgical calendar and doing our best to be aware of that and live it out in our family life yeah. by pointing out who's saint, which feast day it is. If it's a certain saint doing an activity or at least saying a prayer or reading a story that relates to that saint, that's been a great way to do it. It's like the church gives us this, retreat every year. And I love it. Uh, and I want to ask, is there a certain liturgical season that is particularly popular in the Bartell household? Oh, wow. Well, you know, I'm going to have to say Lent. Wow. <laughs> and it's, it's hard, right? Because you have to make sacrifices and really work on your discipline, but it's also really rewarding. And we always make a salt dough crown of thorns and we pull out the toothpicks for the yeah. sacrifices and extra prayers that we make. Um, a neighbor years ago who was Catholic passed on that tradition to us. And it's just been something our kids really, really latched on to. You know, it's not quite all the way Lent till we get that salt dough crown of thorns made. Uh, usually it's a couple of days after Ash Wednesday that I yeah. <laughs> finally get to it. But I, I like the simplicity of it. Yeah. And yeah like a reset. <laughs> I like that. Uh, I hear you. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, for those who are just tuning in, I'm speaking with Sarah Bartell, who's the co-founder of Cana Feast, which is a Catholic online marriage enrichment program. And that's Sarah, where I, I kind of wanted to shift gears here. And if it's all right, let's talk a little bit more about this ministry. Uh, could you uh, just introduce us to Cana Feast? Yes. My husband and I had been doing marriage prep and marriage enrichment mentoring and retreats in person for years, about 10 years, and decided to take that ministry online so that we could reach more people who we couldn't reach in person. And even for local people who couldn't come to weekend events because of childcare or work or schedules, um, we wanted to make a way that they could also experience the benefits of mm -hmm pouring into your marriage of getting that inspiration and enrichment that, you know, helps keep you growing. And our whole ministry is aimed at helping couples grow closer to each other and closer to God, have holy, happy, joyful, connected marriages. Um, so we have two different offerings right now. We have a monthly program where we provide a little monthly virtual retreat that you do in your own home. It's like a video with a worksheet that it's like an, your own at home retreat date night. Um, we address different topics like theology, the body or finances or intimacy or the love languages, the five love languages, just a broad range of topics that help married couples live out their vocation. And then we also have a deep dive course that we just finished and that's called abundant. 
And that is like a more systematic experience that um, you know takes you on a journey more intensely and helps bring about a great transformation to couples. So, we're really so that excited. so that might happen over the course of a few months, then, or is it a longer? Uh, about six to eight weeks to get through all the six modules that we created. Um, yeah. Cool. And uh, if our listeners wanted to hear more or learn more about it, where, where would they go? They would come find us at canafeast.com and start by downloading our free prayer guide or our quiz that we're, we ha- are going to have there on our, our website. And that connects them with what we're doing and um, they will get our news and updates that way. Awesome. So Sarah, you said that you have been, you and your husband have been involved with marriage prep and marriage enrichment for a number of years. What have you seen either change or stay the same over the years? What kind of questions or issues have been bubbling up to the surface that couples are bringing to you? Um, and has that changed over time? You know, perennially couples will bring up communication. That's a big mm-hmm. topic between yeah. couples. And that's a really good one too, because the whole point of our marriage is to become one. Yeah. To form a stronger communion and communication. If you look at the roots of that word, it's co together and then union is in there as well. So it's really important for our becoming one flesh in the sense of one as whole persons with each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And communication is not just verbal, but to tie into the theology of the body. It's also what we say with our bodies. So we um, love addressing communication with our couples. Uh, a lot of times what we bring to the relationship, even if we're well-formed in our Catholic faith, yeah. we may not realize that we have assumptions about how communication should happen <laughs> that, that don't necessarily work well with this particular husband or wife that God has called us to live out our vocation with. So it's really important to work on the human level skills, as well as tapping into the grace of the sacrament to keep you growing in the marriage. And, you know, um, what we found over the years is the couples who really are able to keep growing, to keep um, overcoming obstacles that might crop up. um, And they do. I mean, for all of us, all sorts of issues Mm -hmm. pop up. It's those couples that have a growth mindset. And I guess in religious terms, we would say humility or ability to have conversion, right? Yeah, yeah. And what's really sad and frustrating for us is when we're working with these great couples and, you know, they, we love the husband, love the wife. They're such good people, yeah. but neither one is willing to recognize that if they change themselves, it will help their marriage because they're really stuck on saying the whole problem is the other one, right? So when we have couples like that, it's really hard to make progress with them (laughs) and because they'll talk all about what the other person is doing wrong or what they wish they would do. And anyway, isn't that funny though? Like when we talk about the five love languages, Uh the person who founded that, um, Uh, He founded it so that you could learn your spouse's love language and speak it to them. But what most people do when they find out about the love languages is they identify theirs and then they tell the one they love, like what they need, right? Like you see the difference. So true. I, until this very moment, that's exactly what I, I thought the love languages were for. I thought it was for us to to identify our own language. So yes, that's uh, there exhibit a right here. It's conversion, right? Like not being self-centered. It's yeah. so funny. Oh gosh. Uh, you know, I want to go back to the theme of saints that has come up a few times uh, in your own ministry uh, and with 
prep and enrichment for marriages. Um, have you turned to any saints for inspiration and guidance in this area? Oh, yes, yes. That's such a great question. I love it. When we founded our Cana Feast ministry um, in 2019, we started it on the feast of Saints Louis and Zelie Martin, St. Therese's, the little flowers, mom and dad, who are such a great example of a somewhat contemporary, holy married couple. And what's great about them is unlike a lot of married saints in our Catholic tradition who seem to have become saints despite being married, you know, finally when their husband or wife kicked off and died or they laid the left for their separate monasteries, then their their real work of holiness began. But St. Louis and Zelie, by contrast, they became holy while being in a happy, loving marriage. And that's the whole goal for us with our ministry is to really nourish happy, loving, joyful Catholic marriages even when they're suffering present, like Louis and Zelie, they had children die, their parents die. They had the Prussian army occupy their area and have to be garrisoned in their home. They had lawsuits with neighbors. Like they had real life difficulties, business trouble, but um, they over, you know, they marched through and and overcame and they were just really happy with each other, even though their personalities were very different as well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they had to allow for each other's different styles. Um, But another couple who is so exciting that we learned about in 2020 is um, a black couple in America, servant of God, um, Pierre Toussaint. So servant of God, Pierre Toussaint, who was a slave in Haiti, who was brought to New York, um, was eventually freed and he worked as a hairdresser. He had connections with Alexander Hamilton's family and the Schuyler sisters. Like that was the world that he moved in and he was very well paid as a hairdresser, but also was um, a daily mass attendee and Mm. devoted to works of charity for all, you know, all sorts of people in need in New York. And he was married to a woman he loved very much, Juliette Toussaint. He bought her freedom from slavery and uh, they, they did their good works together and we're, we're happy together. And that's how Mm. he became holy. So they're, they're co-patrons of Cana Feast. Awesome. Oh, I love, I love, uh, love to hear this story. I don't know it very well. I don't, I, I know the name, but definitely I think I, I love how the church gives us these opportunities to learn more about the men and women who have come before us, who have shown us just all these different ways to love Christ and neighbor. It is awesome. Um, you know, uh, I want to ask why Cana feast? Where does that come from? So our listeners might wonder like, what's Cana? <laughs> Oh, yay. Well, it's the wedding at Cana where Jesus transformed the six jugs of water into wine. If I could pick one spot in the Bible to just hang out and live for all eternity, I think that might be it. I would just hang out at the wedding at Cana. That The mystery of that attracts me so much. Um, and it, there's so many rich layers of symbolism and it's joyful. It's a wedding feast. It's the foreshadowing of the wedding feast of the lamb of heaven. And we see when Jesus transforms the water into wine, so many things, there's a foreshadowing of his gift of himself on the cross and the Eucharist in the blood that pours forth from his sacred heart and the water from his sacred heart, which, uh, you know, give us life in the sacraments. But there's also the fact that through the sacrament of marriage, Jesus transforms our ordinary human love, which is kind of normal, like water, mm-hmm. into something extraordinary, like wine, something that is flowing with grace that leads to eternal life. And that's joyful and abundant. 
the six mm-hmm. jugs of wine were way more than enough to keep that, <laughs> keep that wedding party in Cana and Galilee well supplied, um, for the remainder of the wedding celebration that is equivalent to 120 to 180, um, gallons of wine. So we calculated that and that's like six cases of today's bottles of wine. So much wine. Yeah. So I just love that mystery of the bridegroom and the bride that is present there. And there's our lady there too. She's the one who intervenes and says they have no more wine. Like she's looking at all our marriages today and saying like, oh, they're feeling depleted and exhausted. They, they're out of wine. You know, my son, can you come and renew and refresh them? And that's really what we see our ministry as, you know, helping to do that, to bring renewal and refreshment to couples so that they feel like they're in that joy again. Oh, I love it. And I hope this will inspire listeners to, uh, perhaps go and revisit that scripture passage, the wedding feast at Cana. And we've got a couple minutes left, Sarah. And I often like to ask my guests, just where, where else are you seeing some signs of hope in our church and our world today? You know, every time I see a young couple approach the church to get married, they are always a sign of hope for me. I just love seeing engaged and newlywed and young couples um, because they are, they're saying yes to their vocation. They're full of hope and optimism, and they're usually um, in, a, in a way to bring new life into the church. And there's a lot of them. And we're seeing couples who are so on fire for Christ and dedicated to their faith. Like I've seen couples get engaged in the vestibule of church um, while adoration is happening. So yeah. I, I think there's just God is really working through that to build up his church through marriage. Thank you, Sarah, for leaving us on that, on that sign of hope. And yeah, thank you so much for your time today. I just ask that God continue to bless you, your family and your beautiful ministry. Thank you so much, Miriam. Such a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much. God bless. God bless you too. During our interview, Sarah recalls how her uncle um, asked her what she wanted to be when she grew up. And at one point he said, well, why not be a saint? And that question really stayed with her. And I want to connect that question uh, with the miracle at Cana. Um, Pope Francis has talked about how part of this journey of becoming a saint involves the holy habit of paying attention to details. And he uses the story of Cana to illustrate that point. So he talks about Mary paying attention to details. Um, They had run out of wine and she was dialed into her surroundings and was attentive to the needs and the concerns around her. So this also offers a powerful example of her intercessory role, which is a topic for another episode. But for now, I just want to place this prayer and this challenge before you this week. Why not be a saint? And how might you be especially attentive to your surroundings this week, paying attention to where the Lord has placed you and to what He might be asking of you in this place and in this time? And are you ready to set aside your plans in the coming days and do whatever He tells you? As always, thank you so much for tuning in. Please join me next week for more stories on what God is doing through His people today. Until then, stay well and stay close to Christ. God bless you all. You've been listening to Blazing the Trail, produced through the studios of the Archdiocese of Portland. 
Join us in our mission to share the good news of Jesus Christ across Western Oregon by visiting archdpdx.org.